Our epistle lesson and the sermon text is from Matthew chapter 1. This is the gospel of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the Lord, through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, And he called his name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We pray that as we look into your word that you would make us like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In the book of Genesis, as Jacob prepares to re-enter the promised land and meet his brother Esau, he was met by an unknown assailant in the night, and he spends all night wrestling and fighting with whom we know to be the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate eternal Son of God. And as the sun is coming up, the angel puts Jacob's leg out of joint, and then this exchange takes place. Let me read this for you. And he, the angel, said, let me go, for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, But Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? In the scriptures, names are often important. A person's name tells you something about that person, about their essence or about their character. We think of people like, Nabal, who acts foolishly and whose name literally means fool. Or the important name changes that take place, like when Abram's name was changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, the father of nations, to reflect a new reality in his life. Or as we just read in Genesis, Jacob's name change to Israel. There are still cultures in the world today that retain something of this biblical idea of where when you meet people, they will not tell you 
their true name. It's considered too personal. They have a name that they use for friends and for those outside of their immediate family, but only their immediate family knows their true name because it communicates something of their person and something of their essence. In the past, when great people had done great deeds, whether for good or evil, their names were expanded to carry the new freight of the person. Think of people like Gregory the Great or Alexander the Great or Julian the Apostate. The names of towns or places signify something about the geography of a place or what the, cons- the people who live there consider important. And one of the first and lifelong decisions that parents make for their children is giving them a name. Well, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1, and as you read it, you'll notice how much of the entire first chapter is simply names. We're immediately confronted with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, three names. And then we're given half of the chapter is a genealogy, a list of names. And then the focus of the birth narrative that follows the rest of the chapter is what the Christ child will be named. Matthew 1 is a traditional text for Advent where we celebrate the coming of the eternal Son of God. And from that time forward, the whole world has been, in a sense, like Jacob, wrestling with the Son of God and wondering after his identity. Who is Jesus is the great question of history. In Matthew chapter 1, we are given a few of his names and titles, and they teach us what Jesus is like. And it is the best news the world has ever heard. So like we normally do, I want to walk through our text, and then I want to return and consider some of the names and titles that we learn about Jesus in our text. Matthew begins narrating the story of Jesus' birth by noting that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, but she was found to be with child before they came together, in verse 18. Matthew provides the prophetic basis for this great miracle in verse 23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. These verses, along with the Old Testament, reading that we read from Isaiah 7 provide the basis for the church's confession of the virgin birth. Every other week in our um, service, we confess the Nicene Creed out of our folders, which said that Jesus Christ is incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. The confessing the virgin birth and the virgin conception of Christ has been the church's practice from the earliest of centuries. And in the recent past, though, this doctrine has been challenged or rejected. The classical liberals in the 19th century found it, along with just about every miracle in the Bible, to be too fantastic, that it was simply mythological. Perhaps people in the time of the New Testament and the Old Testament, they didn't know really where children came from, so they had to make, create these myths to explain how these great people came about. 
More recently, in our day, we can see people who challenge it because it seems unimportant. Does it really matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do the scriptures really teach it? Well, in our text, Isaiah uses a Hebrew word, Alma, which can be translated young woman and not necessarily virgin. Hebrew does have a word, another word, for virgin, and Isaiah does not use that term in the text that we read earlier. However, what Matthew is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and this was written many, many years before Jesus, and the word from the Greek Old Testament is parthenos, which does mean technically a virgin. So the Bible has taught the virgin birth from Christ in the Greek translation of the Old Testament centuries before Jesus. So why is that important? Why is it important that we confess it? Why is it something that we do every other week? Well, some have theorized that the stain of original sin is passed on from the father rather than the mother. And so as long as Jesus didn't have a human father, then he would be free from sin, that he needed to not have a human father in order to be free from original sin. And the Bible does teach that Jesus is free from sin of all kinds, in Hebrews five fourteen and other places, but this doesn't seem to be the rationale for the virgin birth here. It doesn't really make sense. Why wouldn't Jesus have picked up a sin nature from Mary as well? To protect against this conclusion, the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, has resorted to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which refers to Mary's own freedom from sin. Normally, that's something that we, that's difficult to understand, is the Immaculate Conception doesn't refer to Jesus being free from sin, but actually from Mary being free from sin. Um, but this creates an, a kind of infinite regression. If Mary is free from sin, um, how was she created free from sin if both her mother and her father were, and then so on and so forth, all the way back? And if God can create Mary free from original sin without needing to have sinless parents, then why couldn't he simply do it with Jesus? When we talk about the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, the focus is not on Mary's virginity, but Jesus's paternity. It's a sign that God is his father, that God is doing something new. It's a new creation, a beginning of a new man, Jesus Christ, within the old humanity. Why is it important? Why do we confess it every other week? The import of the virgin birth is that we are not capable of saving ourselves. Our salvation does not and cannot come from us. If we're to be saved, God must come from the outside. The virgin birth is a sign that there will be no salvation from our own initiatives or learning or high living. It's a condemnation on all of our efforts at self-salvation and that we would put the world right by our own living. If the world is going to be right, the virgin birth teaches that It must be God entering the world from the outside because everything that comes from within humanity is corrupted and weak. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he was minded to put her away 
quietly. See that in verse 19. We're told this was because of his high character and his commitment to justice. Look at verse 19 with me. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Notice that it does not say, Joseph, being a just and righteous man, wanted her to be stoned publicly as an example in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 22. Joseph's tender heart that we see in this passage is not a violation of his commitment to God's holiness or his holy standards, but it's an outgrowth of it. This means that a strict and wooden enforcement of God's standards as though they fell out of some impersonal matrix in the sky is not being just or righteous. This discounts the very personal nature of God's laws and the very personal nature of the God who gives those laws. This is where I think Joseph is is a real challenge and a real example to any of us who are in a position of authority, whether you're a father and a husband or a mother, parents, um, really for all of us, is that if we simply apply God's standards woodenly, as if it was given to us out of some impersonal rule book that fell out of the sky, we're not acting in accordance with justice. We're not acting in accordance with God's holiness. God does not even apply his standards in a wooden sort of way, like out of a chart. If, we're, if we do all of our, um, our discipline and our child rearing and our, the way that we manage employees, if it can be done completely with a chart, if, if you do X, you will get Y. If Z happens, we will do A for X amount of time. Then we're not enforcing God's standards the way that God does. We've missed the boat and we've missed godliness Joseph here says he was a just man, and because he was just, he had a tender heart and was resolved to do the right thing, but to do the right thing mingled with mercy. God's standards are high, and they should be wielded by tender hearts who know God's law deep in their bones, and yet are able to look at a person and see the person for who they are, to understand the situation, to understand God's law, and see how all of these factors come together, and then to render a just judgment. In short, the right application of God's law to our families, to our workplaces, to anywhere that we have authority, requires the wisdom of kings. Joseph is not a king, but while we're talking about names, I want you to look at the next verse in 20, that Joseph is called the son of David. He's not a king, he's not a ruler, but Joseph is like a king, and that he's able to minister justice and mercy mingled perfectly. It's a a real challenge, and it's a real call for us to think about how we are applying God's standards. In the opening of John's gospel, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was not descended from Joseph physically, but in this way, their characters were remarkably similar. 
Like his Old Testament namesake, Joseph receives dreams from the Lord. And an angel appears to him and tells him that what Mary has conceived is a result of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. The angel told him further that the baby would be a boy and that they were to name him Jesus. The reason for this name is that he would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. The circumstances of the birth of Christ happened the way they did in the time and the place they did so that God's word would be fulfilled. Verse 22. The life of Jesus is shaped the way that it is because it is shaped in fulfillment of prophecy. And this is one of the great, um, one of the great pains that Matthew goes through all throughout his gospel as he has many, many formulas where he says, and thus it happened so that it would be fulfilled. Or thus the prophet said, and so it was fulfilled. Um, this text that we've just read this morning is one of, it's the first of these instances. The events that happen in Jesus' life happen in the manner they do because he is fulfilling all of the hopes and dreams of the people of Israel. Joseph was obedient to the vision and took Mary, his wife, and, and when their son was born, they gave him the name Jesus as the angel had commanded them. Verse 25. So this is, this is the text. This is a few of the doctrines that are in the text here. It's a a common Advent text, but I want to return to the question that we began with, the question the world has been asking ever since the first Advent, who is Jesus, and what do we find out about him here, what do his names teach us? Starting in verse 18, we see that he is Jesus the Christ. We're so used to referring to the Son of God as Jesus Christ that it's almost as if Christ is his last name. But that's not true. In, in Greek, Christ, Christos, is a title like king or prince. It's a Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah. In the Old Testament, men were appointed or ordained by God to a special, when they were appointed and ordained to a special office, they were anointed with oil. They were messiahs. There's actually a number of messiahs in the Old Testament. We can think of people like Elisha and Aaron and his sons and Saul and David, who were all anointed with oil to signify the Holy Spirit, who was coming upon them and equipping them to fulfill the office to which they were ordained. So when Matthew says that Jesus, he's recording the birth of Jesus the Christ, he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these offices. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament priests. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament kings. He is the fulfillment of all the offices and the hopes and promises of Israel. He's the great prophet that was um, predicted in Deuteronomy 18 to give the final revelation of God and fully explain his ways. He's the true high priest, as it says in Hebrews 3.1, ministering on our behalf in the heavenlies. He opened the new and living way to God, not with the old sacrifices of bulls and goats like in the Old Testament, but through his very flesh and blood when he died on the cross. 
And he's alive as a priest in the true heavenly tabernacle, ministering for us and interceding for us night and day. He's the king, the long-awaited son of David, whose kingdom never ends and whose throne endures to all generations. He rules over all the nations of men, judging them and guiding them in justice, judgment, and equity. So if you want to come to God, you must come through his priest, the Christ. If you want to learn about God and his ways, you must come to the prophet, his Christ. If you want to live in God's kingdom, you have to come to his king, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to another name of Jesus in our passage, Jesus. He is Jesus the Christ. The angel told Mary and Joseph specifically to name him Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. When Jesus worked our salvation from sin, it was a total salvation from sin. He did it by taking all of the sins of his people, all of the sins of everyone who is looking to faith in him, onto himself and dying on the cross and rising from the dead. We read here about God sending his son into the world, and truly God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save us from our sins. The good news of Advent and the good news of the name Jesus is because in the birth of this child, we see God's intention for the full and free forgiveness of sin. Whatever it is that you have done to offend against God, whatever it is that you've done to offend against other people, the name of Jesus is good news for you because the name of Jesus means that he will save you from your sin. But remember that he is saving us from our sin. It's from sin, not just the penalty of our sin later on judgment day, but true freedom from sin, which means we have the responsibility as people who are free from sin to dismantle the entire system of sin here working in the world. We have the responsibility to forgive others freely like we've been forgiven. Likewise, his death and his intention of freeing us from sin means that we shouldn't coddle or cherish the sin that Jesus came to save us from, that we should actively put it to death. So know that Jesus came to save us, not only from the penalty of our sin later, but from the power of sin in our lives, in our community today, and then eventually in the resurrection of the dead, from the presence of sin in total. Finally, I want to look at the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, in verse 23 and 24. This teaches us something about Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God in human flesh. God taken on human nature so that he could be with us. It's not as if Joseph and Mary had a son who later became the son of God. It's not as if there was this pre-existing human who was later infused with godness. No, Emmanuel shows us that Jesus only exists as the humanity of the eternal Son of God. There was never a single moment that the humanity of Jesus existed all by itself. 
It was always, from the moment of conception, the humanity of the Son of God, God's humanity. So this means that Jesus really is God with us, God near us. God entered into human nature in the fullest possible sense. So there's no distance between God and Jesus. To touch the humanity of Jesus is to touch the humanity of God. To see and hear Jesus is to see and hear God in human flesh. As Jesus says of himself in the Gospel of John most emphatically, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Emmanuel truly is in the most direct way possible, both God and with us. And this is good news, because this means that Jesus, as Emmanuel, knows our sorrows, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our frailty, and he knows them intimately, because he is human, truly, in all ways, except sin. So if you are in weakness, if you are in sickness, if you are tired, if you are worn out, if your body is failing, Emmanuel, God, come in human flesh, is good news for you because this means that the resurrection is coming. A standard answer to why Jesus took on humanity is because he needed a human body to be able to die for our sins. And that's true, but what this name Emmanuel shows us is that God the Son of God, eternal Son of God took on humanity to restore us. And this is why what I was saying that the, the incarnation is the incipient, it's the promise of the body, the resurrection of the body. Jesus took on a human body so that when he would rise from the dead, we would have the eternal hope, the promise of our resurrection from the dead. It's easy especially around Advent and Christmas, when we read these verses to um, make them just sentimental, that Emmanuel, God with us, is something that sits really well on a greeting card with maybe like a picture of snow in a nativity scene. God is with us, and um, it makes us feel warm and cuddly. But the sign of Emmanuel gives us the promise of a redeemed humanity. But the sign of Emmanuel can also be comforting or condemning, depending on our faith. God's presence, God coming to be with his people is a joy to the lowly and the humble, but it is a terror to the stiff-necked. I want you to stop and think about what you know the stories that you know from Scripture of God coming to be with his people. Maybe you'll think of um, Genesis 3, when God comes and visits Adam and Eve in the garden. Or when God visits his people in the Exodus. Or God's intention to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. Or Paul saying that Jesus Christ is present with us in the supper. In all of these instances, in every instance that you can think of in the scripture, when God comes to be with his people, it is both a salvation and a judgment. 
the original prophecy from Isaiah 7, which we read earlier and which is referenced in our text, is another example of that. The prophecy was given to Ahaz, the king of Judah, in the context of a military threat from Israel and Syria. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. There's two other kings, one from Israel and Syria, and they're in league. They want to topple Ahaz and put someone sympathetic to their cause on his throne. Isaiah is sent to Ahaz in order to assure him that the plot against his kingdom won't stand and the birth of the child, Emmanuel, God with us, is his assurance. Here's the catch, though. Ahaz is an idolatrous king. And this is where we need to recognize that double edge to the prophecy. When Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, we read that he attempted to sound pious and godly. He says, I won't tempt God. I won't ask for a sign. And yet, at the same time, Ahaz is tempting God by worshiping idols, by constructing altars, um, by disregarding his laws. And yet he says, I'm too pious. I won't ask for a sign. Because of his false piety, God with us is a symbol of his victory, but it's also, if we just continue reading, a symbol of the impending judgment coming against Jerusalem. Right after the promise that God will remove the two kings that he fears, he says that a much more powerful enemy, Assyria, is going to arise and like a razor will come and remove all the glory from Judah. Why is that important? Well, Matthew picks up this prophecy and he's applying it to Jesus as the true, the full, the complete Emmanuel. As I said before, This is just the beginning of many of the thus it was fulfilled formulas that Matthew has throughout his gospel. And if you go and you read all of those formulas, every time that it happens, it's great news for the poor and the humble and the lowly. And for those who are in power and stiff-necked and um, falsely pious, it's terrible news. And this exactly is happening in Matthew Matthew 1 and 2 as well. Just in the next chapter, if we were to flip over, we would find King Herod, who's like Ahaz, who tells the wise men that, oh yes, please, when you find the Christ child, tell me where he is, I would love to come worship him. But he's, he's being falsely pious. He's uh, threatened by Jesus instead. He wants to depose Jesus and kill the Christ child because it is a threat to his reign. Herod cannot rejoice at the news of the new king because the new king is a rival to his own power. And if we were to flip through all the prophecies in Matthew, we would see that the Pharisees cannot rejoice at Jesus because Emmanuel is like Ahaz. He strips away all of their false piety. So this is what Emmanuel means. It's a great comfort and a great sign that those who trust and believe and obey Jesus can be confident in the face of all enemies, of Satan, sin, death, Emmanuel, God with us. God cannot be defeated. God saves his people. But God threatens those who resist him and who put a pious face on their unbelief. Emmanuel, Jesus coming, 
is a sign for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he still is. Jesus is God come near, God with us, the true Christ, God become man. It's a sign of life unto life and death unto death. The only response in the the face of this sign is repentance and humility and faith. Emmanuel has come and Emmanuel is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our king and our prophet, our savior, Emmanuel, God with us. We pray that you would make us like him, that we would rejoice in his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.